Mosley had a weekly meeting with Elizabeth scheduled for that afternoon. When he entered her office, he was immediately reminded of her charisma. She had the presence of someone much older than she was. The way she trained her big blue eyes on you without blinking made you feel like the center of the world. It was almost hypnotic. Her voice added to the mesmerizing effect. She spoke in an unusually deep baritone. Mosley decided to let the meeting run its natural course before bringing up his concerns. Theranos had just closed its third round of funding. By any measure, it was a resounding success. The company had raised another $32 million from investors, on top of the $15 million raised in its first two funding rounds. The most impressive number was its new valuation, $165 million. There weren't many three-year-old startups that could say they were worth that much. One big reason for the rich valuation was the agreements Theranos told investors it had reached with pharmaceutical partners. A slide deck listed six deals with five companies that would generate revenues of $120 million to $300 million over the next 18 months. It listed another 15 deals under negotiation. If those came to fruition, revenues could eventually reach $1.5 billion, according to the PowerPoint presentation. The pharmaceutical companies were going to use Theranos' blood testing system to monitor patients' response to new drugs. The cartridges and readers would be placed in patients' homes during clinical trials. Patients would prick their fingers several times a day, and the readers would beam the blood test results to the trial sponsor. If the results indicated a bad reaction to the drug, the drug's maker would be able to lower the dosage immediately rather than wait until the end of the trial. This would reduce pharmaceutical companies' research costs by as much as 30%, or so the slide deck said. Mosley's unease with all these claims had grown since that morning's discovery. For one thing, in his eight months at Theranos, he'd never laid eyes on the pharmaceutical contracts. Every time he inquired about them, he was told they were under legal review. More important, he'd agreed to those ambitious revenue forecasts because he thought the Theranos system worked reliably. If Elizabeth shared any of these misgivings, she showed no signs of it. She was the picture of a relaxed and happy leader. The new valuation in particular was a source of great pride. New directors might join the board to reflect the growing roster of investors, she told him. Mosley saw an opening to broach the trip to Switzerland and the office rumors that something had gone wrong. When he did, Elizabeth admitted that there had been a problem, but she shrugged it off. It would be easily fixed, she said. Mosley was dubious given what he knew now. He brought up what Shawnak had told him about the investor demos. They should stop doing them if they weren't completely real, he said. We've been fooling investors. We can't keep doing that. Elizabeth's expression suddenly changed. Her cheerful demeanor of just moments ago vanished and gave way to a mask of hostility. It was like a switch had been flipped. She leveled a cold stare at her chief financial officer. Henry, you're not a team player, she said in an icy tone. I think you should leave right now. There was no mistaking what had just happened. Elizabeth wasn't merely asking him to get out of her office. She was telling him to leave the company. Immediately. Mosley had just been fired. That was an excerpt from Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, the book we're discussing today. This book was super interesting because it was based on reporting Carreyrou did for the Wall Street Journal to expose Theranos as a fraud. Three weeks after the book was published in 2018, Elizabeth Holmes, the Theranos founder, and Sonny Balwani, her number two, were both indicted on nine counts of wire fraud. So that excerpt was a little foreshadowing of what we'll talk about later, but for now, let's jump back in time and learn a little bit about Elizabeth Holmes. Elizabeth was a smart and ambitious teenager. She didn't have a ton of friends in high school, but she threw herself into her studies and was a straight-A student. From an early age, she knew she wanted to be a successful entrepreneur. She also knew she wanted to go to Stanford. While she was still in high school, she talked her way into Stanford's Mandarin program, which was only supposed to be for college students. So as a high school student, she spent five weeks studying on Stanford's campus and another four weeks studying in Beijing. In 2002, she started her college career at Stanford, majoring in chemical engineering. She'd always wanted to become rich, but her father had spent his career in public service, so she also had a strong pull to do something that benefited humanity. That is more or less how she chose her major. 
chemical engineering gave her the chance to help the human race and make a lot of money. At Stanford, she latched onto the head of the chemical engineering department, a legendary professor named Channing Robertson. Robertson helped Elizabeth get experience in the research lab before leaving for Asia the summer after her freshman year for an internship at the Genome Institute of Singapore. During this internship, she was testing patient specimens obtained through syringes and nasal swabs. And this experience made her convinced that there had to be a better method. So when she returned home after the internship, she spent five straight days in her bedroom writing a patent application for an arm patch that would simultaneously diagnose medical conditions and treat them. Okay, so now she's heading back to Stanford for her sophomore year, patent application in hand, and this is from the book. She showed Robertson and Sean Roy, the PhD student she was assisting in his lab, her proposed patent. In court testimony years later, Robertson recalled being impressed by her inventiveness. She had somehow been able to take and synthesize these pieces of science and engineering and technology in ways that I had never thought of. He was also struck by how motivated and determined she was to see her idea through. I never encountered a student like this before of the then thousands of students I had talked to, he said. I encouraged her to go out and pursue her dream. Shawnick was more skeptical. Raised by Indian immigrant parents in Chicago, far from the razzle-dazzle of Silicon Valley, he considered himself very pragmatic and grounded. Elizabeth's concept seemed to him a bit far-fetched, but he got swept up in Robertson's enthusiasm and in the notion of launching a startup. While Elizabeth filed the paperwork to start a company, Shawnick completed the last semester of work he needed to get his degree. In May 2004, he joined the startup as its first employee and was granted a minority stake in the business. Robertson, for his part, joined the company's board as an advisor. All right, so now Elizabeth has officially dropped out of college after one year to build a medical device company. As an aside here, we're familiar with all the famous entrepreneurs who dropped out of college and went on to build iconic companies. People like Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey. The list is long. But those guys have something in common. They were either building consumer products or they were building something with code. Coding is a skill that's easily self-taught. Medicine is not. Consumer products are lightly regulated compared to medical devices. Elizabeth thought of herself as the next visionary tech entrepreneur, but she was in the wrong industry to build an iconic company without the knowledge, skills, or experience. Okay, back to the company. Elizabeth has a company. She has employee number one. Now she needs money. So she taps Tim Draper, a legendary Silicon Valley investor and former neighbor of the Holmes family. He pitched in a million bucks, but more importantly, he brought credibility. If this guy is investing, it must be legit. Now, this is exactly what we talked about with Bernie Madoff. Outsourced trust. Reputation by association. This is dangerous because outsourced trust will eventually bust. If you're investing just because Tim Draper is investing, you're making a bad decision. You probably don't know that Draper is a family friend, and he probably doesn't care if his million-dollar investment goes to zero. Unless you're in the same situation, it's really important to conduct your own due diligence. And this flows really nicely into another one of our maxims we're developing as a shorthand to help us avoid being victims of fraud. That maxim is ask an expert. Consulting an expert should always be part of the due diligence process. It's a great way to counteract outsourced trust. If you want a great example of why you should ask an expert, go back and listen to the Madoff episode and listen for the story about Ed Thorpe. All right, this is from the book. Not everyone bought the pitch. One morning in July 2004, Elizabeth met with MedVenture Associates, a venture capital firm that specialized in medical technology investments. Sitting across a conference room table from the firm's five partners, she spoke quickly and in grand terms about the potential her technology had to change mankind. But when the MedVenture partners asked for more specifics about her microchip system and how it would differ from one that had already been developed and commercialized by a company called Abaxis, she got visibly flustered. Unable to answer the partners' probing technical questions, she got up after about an hour and left in a huff. MedVenture Associates wasn't the only venture capital firm to turn down the 19-year-old college dropout. 
but that didn't stop Elizabeth from raising a grand total of nearly $6 million by the end of 2004 from a grab bag of investors. Interestingly, looking at the short list of investors here, it seems like none of them have any experience in medicine or the medical device industry. This brings us back to another one of our maxims. If you can't swim, stay away from the pool. When you operate outside your area of expertise, you're much more likely to get into trouble, largely because you don't know what questions to ask. As we saw with MedVenture Associates, they asked a couple simple questions, didn't receive answers, and they walked away. Three simple maxims here all apply to this situation. Ask an expert, ask simple questions, demand simple answers, and if you can't swim, stay away from the pool. And this next paragraph here is very telling of what's to come. As the money flowed in, it became apparent to Shawneck that a little patch that could do all the things Elizabeth wanted it to do bordered on science fiction. It might be theoretically possible, just like manned flights to Mars were theoretically possible, but the devil was in the details. When I read this, I immediately thought back to being a kid and inventing things. I put inventing in air quotes here. My best invention was a flying snowboard. Sounds pretty cool, right? Coming up with ideas is pretty easy. Translating those ideas into reality? Totally different story. Elizabeth Holmes had no shortage of great ideas. She told a convincing story. Unfortunately, her ideas were divorced from reality. A couple years after starting the company, Elizabeth hired a guy named Ed Koo to run the engineering department. By this point, Elizabeth had bailed on the idea of the patch and was instead working on a handheld testing device. When Ed got there, he realized his job was basically to turn a non-functioning prototype into a product that worked. There were two problems. First, Elizabeth insisted on using a single drop of blood, and she insisted that the device fit in the palm of your hand, much like a blood glucose meter. I want to drill down on this quickly because it'll keep coming up throughout the book. One of the problems with testing such a small amount of blood is that it has to be diluted in order to have enough liquid to test. And then the problem with the device being tiny is that a lot needs to happen inside of it. Aside from blood and saline, other liquids called reagents are required for blood testing. So many different types of fluid have to be stored inside this device and deployed in exactly the right sequence. It was a really, really tough engineering task. And this is why nobody else had accomplished this task. Unsurprisingly, Ed wasn't making very fast progress with this nearly impossible challenge. Elizabeth asked him to run his team 24 hours a day, but he refused, so she started making more hires. She hired a competing engineering team run by a guy named Tony Nugent. Instead of trying to perfect the device that Ed's team was working on, Tony took another approach. He decided to simply automate all the steps that a human would take when testing a blood sample. To do that, he bought a glue dispensing robot, swapped out some of the pieces so it could make the movements a chemist would make, and put it inside an aluminum box. Elizabeth decided to call this prototype the Edison, but some employees took to calling it the Gluebot. Then she decided to abandon the microfluidics approach that Ed's team was working on, so she fired Ed and his whole team. This concept of microfluidics was the whole premise upon which the company was built, and that was just out the window. This is a recurring theme we're going to see throughout the book. Elizabeth sells a grand vision and delivers a lackluster reality. This is a perfect transition into what I want to talk about next. Most of Theranos' board was made up, frankly, of old men who were enthralled with Elizabeth and had little experience or knowledge in the industry. One exception to that was a man named Avi Tavanian. If you've read much about Apple, you'll recognize that name. He had been the head of software engineering under Steve Jobs, so this guy knew his stuff. This was his experience on the board at Theranos. 
The first couple of board meetings Avi attended had been relatively uneventful, but by the third one, he'd begun to notice a pattern. Elizabeth would present increasingly rosy revenue projections based on deals she said Theranos was negotiating with pharmaceutical companies, but the revenues wouldn't materialize. It didn't help that Henry Mosley, the chief financial officer, had been fired soon after Avi became a director. At the last board meeting he'd attended, Avi had asked more pointed questions about the pharmaceutical deals and been told they were held up in legal review. When he'd asked to see the contracts, Elizabeth had said she didn't have any copies readily available. There were also repeated delays with the product's rollout, and the explanation for what needed to be fixed kept changing. Avi didn't pretend to understand the science of blood testing. His expertise was software. But if the Theranos system was in the final stages of fine-tuning, as he'd been told, how could a completely different technical issue be the new holdup every quarter? That didn't sound to him like a product that was on the cusp of commercialization. Naturally, Avi raised reasonable questions and pushed back in board meetings. Then, this happened. Avi received a call from Don, who was the chairman of the board, asking if they could meet. Avi drove to the old man's office on Sand Hill Road. Elizabeth was really upset, Don informed him when he got there. She felt he was behaving unpleasantly during board meetings and didn't think he should be on the board anymore. Don asked if he wanted to resign. Avi expressed surprise. He was just fulfilling his duties as a director. Asking questions was one of them. Don agreed and said he thought Avi was doing an excellent job. Avi told Don he wanted to take a few days to think things over. When he got back to his house in Palo Alto, he decided to go back and look at all the documents he'd been given over the previous year as a board member, including the investment materials he'd received before he bought his shares. As he read them over, he realized that everything about the company had changed in the space of a year, including Elizabeth's entire executive team. Don needed to see these, he thought. So Avi shows up to Don's office with all the documents he'd been reviewing. He told Don there were many irreconcilable discrepancies, and the board should bring somebody in to replace Elizabeth. Don told him he should resign. Avi eventually decided that he had left Apple because he was done dealing with headaches. This guy had made more money than really anybody could spend, so he wasn't going to start a fight at Theranos. He left the board. When he did, he sent a parting email to Don that ended with, quote, I do hope you will fully inform the rest of the board as to what happened here. They deserve to know that by not going along 100% with the program, they risk retribution from the company and Elizabeth. So this situation with Avi is foreshadowing of the souring relationships to come. Anyone who raises questions at Theranos ends up getting forced out. I want to talk a little bit more about soured relationships because it is such a recurring theme at Theranos, and I think there's a lesson in here for us. So one of Theranos' early employees was a guy named Matt Bissell. He was the head of IT, and this was his experience at Theranos. One aspect of Matt's job had become increasingly distasteful to him. Elizabeth demanded absolute loyalty from her employees, and if she sensed that she no longer had it from someone, she could turn on them in a flash. In Matt's two and a half years at Theranos, he had seen her fire some 30 people. Every time Elizabeth fired someone, Matt had to assist with terminating the employee. Sometimes that meant more than just revoking the departing employee's access to the corporate network and escorting him or her out of the building. In some instances, she asked him to build a dossier on the person that she could use for leverage. There was one case in particular that Matt regretted helping her with, that of Henry Mosley, the former chief financial officer. This is the guy who we heard about in the opening passage of the episode here. After Elizabeth fired Mosley, Matt had stumbled across inappropriate sexual material on his work laptop as he was transferring its files to a central server for safekeeping. When Elizabeth found out about it, she used it to claim it was the cause of Mosley's termination and to deny him stock options. Matt had reported to Mosley until he left and thought he'd done an excellent job of helping Elizabeth raise money for Theranos. He clearly shouldn't have browsed porn on a work-issued laptop, but Matt didn't think it was a capital offense that merited blackmailing him. And besides, it had been found after the fact. Saying it was the reason Mosley was fired simply wasn't true. 
So this example highlights a really important idea that we saw in the episode on Madoff. We'll see numerous times in this episode, and I imagine we're going to keep seeing in future episodes this season. I distilled the idea down to four words. Morals don't take vacations. So what do I mean by that? Basically, a person's character in everyday moments is a good indicator of their future behavior. Elizabeth's habitual mistreatment of employees indicated she didn't really have great morals. This is similar to Madoff buying back his clients' positions in 1962 when he lost all of their money. He did it without them knowing in order to keep his reputation intact. It was a small yet unethical action. So when I say morals don't take vacations, what I mean is that if a person does something immoral or unethical in one situation, it's a good indicator they will do something similar in other situations, situations that may negatively impact you. It doesn't necessarily predict fraud, but it's a good way to identify people we may not want to work with. Aside from the soured relationships, two other recurring themes at Theranos were insane revenue predictions and devices malfunctioning during client demos. In a way, this is related to the souring relationships because countless different employees would realize these issues, bring them up, and then get blacklisted and pushed out. One of these guys was Todd Surdy, and the series of events that played out with him was just absolutely mind-blowing. So Todd was in charge of sales and marketing, and like any good manager, he would go to his direct reports and ask them a lot of questions about what they were experiencing. One of his employees told Todd that she thought Elizabeth was grossly overstating revenue predictions. This next part is important because Elizabeth would always share revenue predictions as if contracts had already been signed. So this is from the book. No significant revenues would materialize unless Theranos proved to each partner that its blood system worked. To that effect, each deal provided for an initial tryout, a so-called validation phase. Some companies, like the British drug maker AstraZeneca, weren't willing to pay more than $100,000 for the validation phase, and all could walk away if they weren't happy with the results. The 2007 study in Tennessee was the validation phase of the Pfizer contract. Its objective was to prove that Theranos could help Pfizer gauge cancer patients' responses to drugs by measuring the blood concentration of three proteins the body produces in excess when tumors grow. If Theranos failed to establish any correlation between the patient's protein levels and the drugs, Pfizer could end their partnership, and any revenue forecast Elizabeth had extrapolated from the deal would turn out to be fiction. Okay, not a big deal, right? Seems like the contracts will be a sure thing as long as Theranos can prove their technology does what they say it does. Well, that's where the second issue comes into play. Back to the book here. Susan, who is the employee who is reporting to Todd, also shared with Todd that she had never seen any validation data. And when she went on demonstrations with Elizabeth, the devices often malfunctioned. A case in point was the one they just conducted at Novartis. The night before that meeting, Susan and Elizabeth had pricked their fingers for two hours in a hotel in Zurich to try to establish some consistency in the test results they were getting to no avail. When they showed up at Novartis' offices the next morning, it got worse. All three Edison readers produced error messages in front of a room full of Swiss executives. Susan was mortified, but Elizabeth kept her composure and blamed a minor technical glitch. So based on all this information, Todd concludes that the board is probably being misled about revenue forecasts. So he gets together with the general counsel, a guy named Michael Esquivel, who also has similar concerns, and they take the issue to a guy named Tom Brodine, one of the board members. Here's how it played out, and you're just really not going to believe this. Todd and Michael told Tom the revenue projections Elizabeth was touting to the board weren't grounded in reality. They were hugely exaggerated and impossible to reconcile with the unfinished state of the product. Brodine was a seasoned businessman in his mid-60s who had headed one of the big consulting firms, as well as several technology companies. He hadn't been on the Theranos board long, having joined at the request of Don Lucas in the fall of 2007. Given how new he was as a director, 
he advised Todd and Michael to take their account directly to Lucas, the board's chairman. Lucas convened an emergency meeting of the board in his office on Sand Hill Road. Elizabeth was asked to wait outside the door while the other directors conferred inside. After some discussion, the four men reached a consensus. They would remove Elizabeth as CEO. She had proven herself too young and inexperienced for the job. Tom Brodine would step in to lead the company for a temporary period until a more permanent replacement could be found. They called in Elizabeth to confront her with what they had learned and inform her of their decision. But then something extraordinary happened. Over the course of the next two hours, Elizabeth convinced them to change their minds. Can you believe that? Change their minds. She told them she recognized there were issues with her management and promised to change. She would be more transparent and responsive going forward. It wouldn't happen again. Brodeen wasn't exactly dying to come out of retirement to run a startup in a field in which he had no expertise. So he took a neutral stance and watched as Elizabeth used just the right mix of contrition and charm to gradually win back his three board colleagues. It was an impressive performance, he thought. A much older and more experienced CEO skilled in the art of corporate infighting would have been hard-pressed to turn the situation around like she had. He was reminded of an old saying, when you strike at the king, you must kill him. Todd Surdy and Michael Esquivel had struck at the king, or rather the queen, but she survived. Wild. This is truly unbelievable to me. And as you might guess, Elizabeth wasted no time firing Todd and Michael. So one of the big things I wanted to highlight here was this cycle of employees figuring out that the company is smoke and mirrors, followed by them raising concerns, followed by them promptly being shown out the door. The culture here was terrible. And like I've said before, this doesn't necessarily suggest fraud, but it suggests there is a toxic environment and fraud can come as a result of that environment. I'll close this section with one more example and a valuable lesson we can all apply. The staff turnover was like nothing he'd ever experienced before, and he was troubled by what he saw as a culture of dishonesty at the company. The worst offender was Tim Kemp, the head of the software team. Tim was a yes man who never leveled with Elizabeth about what was feasible and what wasn't. For instance, he'd contradicted Justin and assured her they could write the Edison software user interface faster in Flash. Get this, this kills me. The very next morning, Justin had spotted a learned Flash book on his desk. Elizabeth never reprimanded Tim, even when obvious examples of his duplicity were brought to her attention. She valued his loyalty, and in her eyes, the fact that he never said no to her reflected a can-do attitude. It mattered little that many of his colleagues thought Tim was a mediocrity and a terrible manager. This excerpt reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from John Boyd. He said, If your boss demands loyalty, give him integrity. But if he demands integrity, then give him loyalty. I think this is a great reminder that if we find ourselves in a situation where loyalty is valued over integrity, that's a place we don't want to be. Why? Because morals don't take vacations. Okay, I need to pause for a second and introduce another important character. This guy is a central figure in the Theranos story. His name is Sonny Balwani. He was Elizabeth's boyfriend and basically her number two at the company. So here's a short description from the book so you can just get a little picture in your head of what this guy's like. Sonny was a force of nature and not in a good way. Though only about five foot five and portly, he made up for his diminutive stature with an aggressive in-your-face management style. His thick eyebrows and almond-shaped eyes set above a mouth that drooped at the edges and a square chin projected an air of menace. He was haughty and demeaning towards employees, barking orders and dressing people down. Some other things you should know about Sonny. He was 20 years older than Elizabeth. They had met in China when she was studying abroad while still in high school. Kind of suspect in my opinion. He was wealthy. He had made about $40 million when a company he worked for was acquired in the dot-com boom. And he has all kinds of weird management practices, like keeping close watch on what time people arrive at the office and leave in the evening. This was his proxy for hard work. So basically, I'm trying to convey that this is not the type of guy you would want running your company. And he was basically running Theranos.
The next part we're going to discuss is one of the most important parts of the book, at least for our purposes of mining actionable lessons on fraud that we can apply as investors and entrepreneurs. So there was a guy who went by the name of Dr. J, and he was a member of the Walgreens Innovation Team. Let me paint you a picture of this character. First of all, he went by the name Dr. J. That might be all you need to know. He greeted people with high fives instead of handshakes, and he introduced himself by saying, I'm Dr. J, and I used to play basketball. He was also an absolute health nut. His passion was helping people live healthier lives. And his role at Walgreens was finding new technologies and initiatives to help reinvigorate the company. This guy colliding with Theranos was a recipe for the perfect storm. Here's a glimpse inside their first meeting. I'm so excited that we're doing this, Dr. J then exclaimed. He was referring to a pilot program the companies had agreed to. It would involve placing Theranos' readers in 30 to 90 Walgreens stores no later than the middle of 2011. The store's customers would be able to get their blood tested with just a prick of the finger and receive their results in under an hour. A preliminary contract had already been signed, under which Walgreens had committed to pre-purchase up to $50 million worth of Theranos cartridges and to loan the startup an additional $25 million. If all went well with the pilot, the companies would aim to expand their partnership nationwide. So Theranos organized this whole dog and pony show where they hosted a team from Walgreens at their office to seal the deal on the partnership. Part of the reason for this visit was to vet the technology. So Walgreens hired an independent consultant named Kevin Hunter and tasked him with evaluating Theranos. Let's take a look at Hunter's experience. Hunter was beginning to grow suspicious. With her black turtleneck, her deep voice, and the green kale shakes she sipped on all day, Elizabeth was going to great lengths to emulate Steve Jobs, but she didn't seem to have a solid understanding of what distinguished different types of blood tests. Theranos had also failed to deliver on his two basic requests, to let him see its lab and to demonstrate a live vitamin D test on its device. Hunter's plan had been to have Theranos test his and Dr. J's blood, then get retested at Stanford Hospital that evening and compare the results. He'd even arranged for a pathologist to be on standby at the hospital to write the order and draw their blood. But Elizabeth claimed she'd been given too little notice, even though he'd made the request two weeks ago. There was something else that bothered Hunter. Sonny's attitude. He acted both superior and cavalier. When the Walgreens side had broached bringing its IT department in on the pilot preparations, Sonny had dismissed the idea out of hand by saying, IT are like lawyers. Avoid them as long as possible. That kind of approach sounded to Hunter like a recipe for problems. Dr. J didn't seem to share his skepticism, though. He appeared taken with Elizabeth's aura and to revel in the Silicon Valley scene. He reminded Hunter of a groupie who'd flown across the country to attend a concert played by his favorite band. When they reconvened at the Theranos office the next morning, they were joined by Wade Michelon, the Walgreens CFO. Wade had negotiated the pilot contract directly with Elizabeth. He, too, seemed to be a big fan of hers. Midway through that day's meeting, Elizabeth made a big show of giving Michelon an American flag that she said had been flown over a battlefield in Afghanistan. She'd written a dedication to Walgreens on it. Hunter thought the whole thing was bizarre. Walgreens had brought him here to vet Theranos' technology, but he hadn't been allowed to do so. The only thing they had to show for their visit was an autographed flag, and yet Dr. J and Michelon didn't seem to mind. As far as they were concerned, the visit had gone swimmingly. At a follow-up meeting to present the program to some Walgreens senior executives, Sonny and Elizabeth suggested the execs get their blood tested, so a handful of them lined up and got their fingers pricked. When Hunter heard about this, he made a note to follow up and ask for the results, which he did on a call later in the week. Elizabeth made some lame excuse about them only being allowed to release the results to a doctor. So Dr. J piped up and suggested that they release the results to him. Sonny agreed to follow up with Dr. J, but after a month, they still hadn't received the results. Back to the book here. 
Hunter's patience was wearing thin. He suggested doing a 50-patient study in which they would compare Theranos' results to ones from Stanford Hospital. He'd done work with Stanford and knew people there. It would be easy to arrange. On the computer screen, Hunter noticed an immediate change in Elizabeth's body language. She became visibly guarded and defensive. No, I don't think we want to do that at this time, she said, quickly changing the subject to other items on the call's agenda. After they hung up, Hunter took aside Renat Vandenhoof, who was in charge of the pilot on the Walgreens side, and told him something just wasn't right. The red flags were piling up. First, Elizabeth had denied him access to their lab. Then, she'd rejected his proposal to embed someone with them in Palo Alto. And now, she was refusing to do a simple comparison study. To top it all off, Theranos had drawn the blood of the president of Walgreens' pharmacy business, one of the company's most senior executives, and failed to give him a test result. Vandenhoof listened with a pained look on his face. We can't not pursue this, he said. We can't risk a scenario where CVS has a deal with them in six months, and it ends up being real. Walgreens' rivalry with CVS colored virtually everything the drugstore chain did. It was a myopic view of the world that was hard to understand for an outsider like Hunter, who wasn't a Walgreens company man. Theranos had cleverly played on this insecurity. As a result, Walgreens suffered from a severe case of FOMO, the fear of missing out. All right, this is a key point we need to discuss. One of our big questions we're trying to answer in this season is how do otherwise intelligent people get tricked? I'm going to answer that question with a maxim. Desire is blinding. In this particular case, we have desire from a couple different angles. Dr. J has a strong desire to help people be healthier by using Theranos' what he thinks is novel technology, and Walgreens has a strong desire to get a leg up on their competitors by offering a novel technology nobody else has. That strong desire is blinding them to all the red flags that Hunter is trying to point out. Somebody looking at this situation with a sober eye can easily see all the concerns, but a strong desire for something to be true prevents you from being able to see that it's obviously false. If we can remember that desire is blinding, we'll be more likely to see the red flags that others are pointing out to us in our businesses or our investments. Okay, now we're going to jump back into the book and look at an example of one of our other maxims, ask simple questions, demand simple answers. Trying to contain his frustration, Hunter made one last request. Theranos always invoked two things as proof that its technology had been vetted. The first was the clinical trial work it did for pharmaceutical companies. Documents it gave Walgreens stated that the Theranos system had been, quote, comprehensively validated over the last seven years by 10 of the largest 15 pharma companies, unquote. The second was a review of its technology Dr. J had supposedly commissioned from Johns Hopkins University Medical School. Hunter had placed calls to pharmaceutical companies and hadn't been able to get anyone on the phone to confirm what Theranos was claiming, though that was hardly proof of anything. He now asked Vandenhoof to show him the Johns Hopkins review. After some hesitation, Vandenhoof reluctantly handed him a two-page document. When Hunter was done reading it, he almost laughed. It was a letter, dated April 27, 2010, summarizing a meeting Elizabeth and Sonny had had with Dr. J and five university representatives on the Hopkins campus in Baltimore. It stated that they had shown the Hopkins team, quote, proprietary data on test performance, unquote, and that Hopkins had deemed the technology novel and sound. But it also made clear that the university had conducted no independent verification of its own. In fact, the letter included a disclaimer at the bottom of the second page. The materials provided in no way signify an endorsement by Johns Hopkins Medicine to any product or service. Hunter told Vandenhoof the letter was meaningless. This is almost the exact same situation we saw play out with Ed Thorpe in the Bernie Madoff episode. Thorpe asked simple questions that should have had simple answers, and he kept following up until he realized the answers didn't exist because something was clearly wrong. Ed Thorpe called the options traders who were supposed to be on the other side of Madoff's trades, and none of them 
had done any business with Madoff. In this case, Hunter called the pharmaceutical companies who had allegedly vetted Theranos' technology, and none of them confirmed doing any such thing. This is a super important pattern, mostly because it's such an easy thing to do, and it's pretty much foolproof. If you can't get simple answers to your simple questions, that's a really good indication that something is wrong. We're going to look at one more quick excerpt from the book here, but before I do, I want to raise one point. Remember those blood test results Sonny was supposed to get to Dr. J? Well, it never happened, and Dr. J stopped asking for them. All right, back to the book. Hunter focused on what he could control, continuing to ask tough questions on the weekly video calls until one day in early 2011, Lipinski told him that Elizabeth and Sonny no longer wanted him on the calls or in meetings between the companies. They felt he was creating too much tension and that it interfered with getting work done, she said. Walgreens had no choice but to comply or Theranos would walk away, she added. Hunter tried to convince her to rebuff the demand. Why was Walgreens paying his firm $25,000 a month to look out for its best interest if it was going to keep him at arm's length and make it harder for him to do his job? It made no sense. His protestations were politely ignored, and Elizabeth and Sonny got their way. Hunter continued to work with the innovation team and to provide his expertise when asked, but his exclusion from subsequent calls and meetings marginalized him and limited his input. All right, so that excerpt puts the cherry on top of this section, and again, highlights another important maxim, ask an expert. And this is related to the ask simple questions maxim, because experts are best positioned to ask the right questions and then know when they're receiving answers that don't make sense. We saw this a few times in the Madoff episode where experts raised concerns that nobody listened to. People like Ed Thorpe, who I've mentioned a couple times already, and Harry Markopoulos, who is the kind of the famous whistleblower for the Madoff Ponzi scheme. The crazy thing in this case is that Walgreens actually did ask an expert, but then they totally disregarded the advice the expert provided. So as we've already seen repeatedly, and I'm sure we'll continue to see in subsequent episodes this season, one of the best ways to avoid fraud is to ask an expert for help with your due diligence and then to trust the recommendations that that expert makes. Theranos landed another pretty huge partnership, but before I tell you about that, I want to read you a paragraph that highlights how comical Elizabeth was as a CEO. Now, she she was a really intelligent person. She was good at manipulating people. She was good at selling a vision. She was good at uniting people, but she had just like no clue about the science side of what she was doing, which was probably the most important part. So a few different times, I looked up from the book and felt like I was watching an episode of The Office. She did the weirdest things that were almost like what a 12-year-old would do if he were playing the boss in a make-believe game with his friends. One thing she is now notorious for, because it came out to be an act, was speaking in a deep, unnatural voice. That by itself is pretty funny, but she also idolized Steve Jobs to a fault. As one example, on the day Jobs died, Elizabeth wanted to fly an Apple flag at half-mast. She sent an employee to find a flag, and it took him most of the day. Meanwhile, and I'm going to read this directly from the book, quote, Work at the company came to a standstill as Elizabeth and Sonny moped around the office, consumed by the hunt for the Apple flag. Sounds like something Michael Scott would do, right? So this is the paragraph I wanted to read you to highlight the silliness. Some colleagues in the engineering department began to notice that Elizabeth was borrowing behaviors and management techniques described in Walter Isaacson's biography of the late Apple founder. They were all reading the book too and could pinpoint which chapter she was on based on which period of Jobs' career she was impersonating. Elizabeth even gave the Minilab a Jobs-inspired codename, the 4S. It was a reference to the iPhone 4S, which Apple had coincidentally unveiled the day before Jobs passed away. Another quick example because Sonny wasn't any better than Elizabeth. After becoming fed up with Theranos, one of the software engineers put in his two weeks notice. At the end of the two weeks, he got up, collected his belongings, and headed toward the door. Elizabeth and Sonny came running after him saying he needed to sign a non-disclosure agreement. He replied that they had had two weeks to schedule a meeting with him, but now he was no longer an employee and he was leaving. The next passage is from the book and it's hilarious. Sonny called the cops 
20 minutes later, a police cruiser quietly pulled up to the building with its lights off. A highly agitated Sonny told the officer that an employee had quit and departed with company property. When the officer asked what he'd taken, Sonny blurted out in his accented English, He stole property in his mind! And then I think this might be the best example yet. While Elizabeth was fast to catch on to engineering concepts, Sonny was out of his depth during engineering discussions. To hide it, he had a habit of repeating technical terms he heard others using. During a meeting with Arnov's team, he latched onto the term end effector, which signifies the clause at the end of a robotic arm. Except Sonny didn't hear end effector, he heard endofactor. For the rest of the meeting, he kept referring to the fictional endofactors. At their next meeting with Sonny two weeks later, Arnov's team brought a PowerPoint presentation titled Endofactors update. As Arnov flashed it on a screen with a projector, the five members of his team stole furtive glances at one another, nervous that Sonny might become wise to the prank. But he didn't bat an eye, and the meeting proceeded without incident. After he left the room, they burst out laughing. Elizabeth and Sonny were essentially a couple of morons running this multi-billion dollar company. This became quickly apparent to many of the employees, as we've kind of mentioned again and again here. Unfortunately, this was much harder for partners and investors to see because they weren't inside the business on a daily basis. Speaking of partners, Walgreens wasn't Theranos' only partner. If you shopped in a Safeway supermarket sometime around 2012, there's a good chance it had been upgraded to include a wellness center for their partnership with Theranos. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me give you a little background first. Steve Bird was the longtime CEO of Safeway. He was known for successfully leading the company for like two decades when his interests shifted from groceries to healthcare. He realized that healthcare costs would eventually bankrupt the company, and he became obsessed with wellness and preventative healthcare programs for his employees. He was also a health nut himself. Somehow, Bird learned about Theranos, became enamored with their concept, and also with Elizabeth, and he sought out a partnership with the company. This brings me back to the wellness centers. The partnership basically arranged for Safeway to be the only grocery store offering Theranos' finger-stip rapid result blood testing. As part of the deal, Theranos required that Safeway renovate their stores to build upscale clinics, what they called wellness centers, and they had to look, quote, better than a spa. So Safeway made the renovations in about half of their 1,700 stores to the tune of $350 million. This is absolutely wild to me because it seems like Safeway footed this bill entirely on good faith. Despite what Theranos may have told them, they didn't have the technology to pull off what they were advertising. So they wouldn't have been able to do a demonstration. And for a company to shell out that much cash without conducting seemingly any due diligence is just totally bonkers to me. I, I just can't imagine that. As you can imagine, there were all kinds of delays as Elizabeth was trying to buy Theranos more time to actually build the device they claimed existed. Finally, in 2012, they agreed to do a beta rollout where Theranos would take over the blood testing at the Safeway employee clinic. The guy overseeing this beta program was Safeway's chief medical officer, a former army doctor named Kent Bradley. This was his experience. Bradley had worked with a lot of sophisticated medical technologies in the Army, so he was curious to see the Theranos system in action. However, he was surprised to learn that Theranos wasn't planning on putting any of its devices in the Pleasanton Clinic. Instead, it had stationed two phlebotomists there to draw blood, and the samples they collected were couriered across San Francisco Bay to Palo Alto for testing. He also noticed that the phlebotomists were drawing blood from every employee twice, once with a lancet applied to the index finger, and a second time the old-fashioned way with a hypodermic needle inserted in the arm. Why the need for venipunctures if the Theranos fingerstick technology was fully developed and ready to be rolled out to consumers, he wondered. Bradley's suspicions were further aroused by the amount of time it took to get test results back. His understanding had been that the tests were supposed to be quasi-instantaneous, but some Safeway employees were having to wait as long as two weeks to receive their results. And not every test was performed by Theranos itself. Even though the startup had never said anything about outsourcing some of the testing, Bradley discovered that it was farming out some tests to a big reference laboratory in Salt Lake City called ARUP. 
What really set off Bradley's alarm bells, though, was when some otherwise healthy employees started coming to him with concerns about abnormal test results. As a precaution, he sent them to get retested at a Quest or LabCorp location. Each time, the new set of tests came back normal, suggesting the Theranos results were off. Then, one day, a senior Safeway executive got his PSA result back. The acronym stands for Prostate-Specific Antigen, which is a protein produced by cells in the prostate gland. The higher the protein's concentration in a man's blood, the likelier he is to have prostate cancer. The senior Safeway executive's result was very elevated, indicating he almost certainly had prostate cancer, but Bradley was skeptical. As he had done with the other employees, he sent his worried colleague to get retested at another lab, and lo and behold, that result came back normal too. Bradley put together a detailed analysis of the discrepancies. Some of the differences between Theranos's values and the values from the other labs were disturbingly large. When the Theranos values did match those of the other labs, they tended to be for tests performed by ARUP. Bradley shared his concerns with Larray Renda, his boss, and with Brad Wolfson, the president of Safeway Health. Her faith already shaken by the delays of the past two years, Renda encouraged him to talk to Bird about them, which Bradley did. But Bird politely brushed him off, assuring the ex-Army doctor that Theranos technology had been vetted and was sound. So this is another perfect example of someone not listening to the expert that they're paying to give them an expert opinion. You'd think that when the chief medical officer of your company comes to you and says, hey, there's some major issues with this healthcare initiative that we're supposed to be rolling out, that you'd at least look into his concerns. But just like Walgreens did with their consultant, who was sounding the alarm bells, Safeway ignored their expert who was looking out for their best interests. This is a clear answer to one of the big questions we're exploring this season. How do otherwise intelligent people get tricked? One of the answers is they don't listen to experts. Morgan Housel has an excellent piece called Degrees of Confidence that I'll link to in the show notes. Basically, the idea is that the more of an expert you are in a certain area, the more likely you are to mistakenly believe that your expertise carries over to other areas. So otherwise intelligent people can easily fall victim to fraud when they think they are smarter than the experts who are trying to protect them. Here's another quick excerpt that highlights one of our maxims. Ask simple questions, demand simple answers. Had Steve Bird been allowed inside the East Meadow Circle lab, he would have noticed it didn't contain a single Theranos proprietary device. That's because the mini lab was still under development and nowhere near ready for patient testing. What the lab did contain was more than a dozen commercial blood and body fluid analyzers made by companies such as Chicago-based Abbott Laboratories, Germany's Siemens, and Italy's Diasorin. This is the exact same thing we saw with Walgreens, the fear of missing out. Honestly, at this point, it was probably a lot of the sunk cost fallacy too. But three of our maxims, if followed could have done a lot of damage control in this partnership. Ask an expert, desire is blinding, ask simple questions, demand simple answers. If they had adhered to these principles from the beginning, they probably would have avoided this debacle. I want to tell you a little bit about the advertising agency Theranos was using. You probably won't be surprised by this based on that Steve Jobs excerpt I read you earlier, but Elizabeth hired Shiat Day as the ad agency to build a brand, website, and smartphone app for Theranos. Shiat Day is the same ad agency Apple used for a long time. They were responsible for some of Apple's most famous ads like the Think Different campaign. So what's wrong with hiring Shiat Day, you might be wondering. Seems like a good idea if Apple used them. Sure, nothing wrong with the agency, except the fact that they were charging Theranos an annual retainer of $6 million. That's a lot of money for a startup to be spending when they aren't really bringing in any money to speak of. This feels to me like something the board maybe should have picked up on. So there are a few kind of funny things about the Theranos relationship with the ad agency, and then there's one big issue that I want to talk about. First, something funny. Elizabeth scheduled the weekly meetings with Shiat Day on Wednesdays. Is that what fit her schedule best? Is that the time Shiat Day had available? No to both. 
Elizabeth picked Wednesdays because that was the day Apple used to hold their creative meetings with the agency. It's hilarious not that she idolizes jobs, a lot of people idolize jobs, but she consistently and comically uses the wrong takeaways from studying his life. She wears black turtlenecks and drinks green smoothies. She schedules her meetings on the same days that Apple did, and she codenames her products after Apple products. She copies all the things that aren't substantive and doesn't bother with arguably the most important lesson any founder should take from jobs, building insanely great products. She totally skipped that step. Second thing here is the impression Sonny makes on the ad agency. This is from the book. While Patrick remained entranced with Elizabeth, Stan Fiorito was more circumspect. A gregarious ad industry veteran with reddish blonde hair and freckles, Stan thought that there was something odd about Sonny. He used a lot of software engineering jargon in their weekly meetings that had no applicability whatsoever to their marketing discussions. And when Stan tried to get him to walk through how he'd arrived at what seemed like extremely aggressive sales targets, Sonny gave vague and boastful answers. Normally, companies did research to determine the size of the audience they were marketing to, and then worked out what percentage of that audience they could realistically hope to convert into customers. But such basic concepts seemed lost on Sonny. If one of their service providers could so easily see that Sonny was a moron, why couldn't investors and partners like Walgreens and Safeway see this? Okay, so those first two points were kind of funny, but this third one is pretty important. There were two employees on the Shiat Day team responsible for building the website and creating in-store signs and brochures. Their names were Kate Wolf and Mike Pedito. It didn't take them long to figure out that Theranos was a lot less impressive than Elizabeth talked it up to be. This again is from the book. Elizabeth wanted the website and all the various marketing materials to feature bold affirmative statements. One was that Theranos could run over 800 tests on a drop of blood. Another was that its technology was more accurate than traditional lab testing. She also wanted to say that Theranos test results were ready in less than 30 minutes and that its tests were approved by the FDA and endorsed by key medical centers such as the Mayo Clinic and the University of California, San Francisco's medical school, using the FDA, Mayo Clinic, and UCSF logos. When she inquired about the basis for the claim about Theranos' superior accuracy, Kate learned that it was extrapolated from a study that had concluded that 93% of lab mistakes were due to human error. Theranos argued that, since its testing process was fully automated inside its device, that was grounds enough to say that it was more accurate than other labs. Kate thought that was a big leap in logic and said so. After all, there were laws against misleading advertising. So Kate and Mike clearly had some suspicions about Theranos, rightfully so, as we saw from that excerpt. One of the things Elizabeth kept referring to that supposedly supported the claims she wanted on the website was a several hundred page report. Naturally, Kate and Mike requested the report, but since it probably didn't exist, Elizabeth kept putting them off. Instead, she sent them what she claimed to be excerpts from the report, one of which claimed that Johns Hopkins Med School had conducted due diligence on their technology and found it sound and capable of running a wide range of tests. Not only was this not true, but it was based on that two-page summary of a meeting with Johns Hopkins, the same one I mentioned earlier when we talked about the Walgreens partnership. Theranos was using this bullshit document that meant nothing to put the credibility of Johns Hopkins behind their products. And so this reminds me of what we talked about in the Bernie Madoff episode, where the regulators just requested trading records from him rather than from a third party. Of course, he could give them fake records, just like Elizabeth could give fake excerpts from a report that didn't exist. Now, I wouldn't really expect an ad agency to be as demanding as a potential investor or partner, but this is an important reminder of another maxim. Always independently verify. Confirm the information you receive with a third party who has no conflict of interest. If you take claims at face value from the person looking for your money, you're basically asking to be defrauded.
Another important piece of information here, Shiat Day suggested conducting focus groups with physicians so they could gain some insights on how to market to doctors. Kate recruited her wife and her father, who were both physicians, to participate. This is from the book. Kate's wife, Tracy, was chief resident at Los Angeles County General, where she was completing a residency in internal medicine and pediatrics. During her interview, which was conducted by phone, Tracy asked some questions that no one on the Theranos end of the line seemed to be able to answer. That evening, she told Kate she was dubious that the company had any truly novel technology. She questioned especially the notion that you could get enough blood from a finger to run tests accurately. Tracy's skepticism gave Kate pause. So that information, in conjunction with the claims Kate and Mike were being asked to put on the website, was giving them some concerns about Shia Day's legal liability. From that point forward, they made sure that all the claims on the website were approved in writing by Theranos. Finally, the night before the website was about to launch, Elizabeth went into crisis mode and called an emergency meeting with Shia Day where they went through the website line by line and basically walked back all the bold claims that Kate and Mike had been questioning all along. This is from the book. The last-minute revisions only served to reinforce Kate and Mike's suspicions. Elizabeth had wanted all those sweeping claims to be true, but just because you badly wanted something to be real didn't make it so, Mike thought. He and Kate were beginning to question whether Theranos had any technology at all. Did its vaunted black box, as the people at Shiat Day referred to the Theranos device, even exist? So basically what happened here is two mid or lower level employees at an ad agency figured out that Theranos was a fraud. Kate and Mike didn't have any science or medical experience. They simply had common sense. If these two could figure it out, all of Theranos' investors and partners should have been able to figure it out too. But as we've said again and again and again, desire is blinding. By 2013, Elizabeth was getting some really good media attention. She planned to use this along with the planned Walgreens launch to raise money. Before we get into the fundraising, I want to spend a minute on the Theranos technology. They originally had a device they were calling the Edison. This is the glue bot that we talked about earlier. It wasn't really innovative at all. It was essentially just a robot that performed the same tasks as a chemist would perform in a lab, but it was much less accurate and prone to a lot of different errors. It was also only able to perform one class of blood tests called immunoassays, so it limited Theranos significantly in their scope. As an example, it wasn't able to perform common tests like cholesterol or blood sugar. This is the technology they had when they made the deals with Walgreens and Safeway, so they obviously needed something else. So they started working on another device called the Minilab. The idea behind this device was that it would be small enough to set on a counter, and it would perform all blood tests with just a drop or two of blood. There were other devices that could perform a couple dozen tests on a small amount of blood. Other devices made by other companies. Now, these were real things that actually worked. And they were relatively small, like the size of a small ATM. But nothing existed that could test everything with a tiny sample and essentially be portable size. This was the value proposition Elizabeth was after. She wanted to bring blood testing to drugstores, supermarkets, and people's homes. She wanted it to be fast, use very little blood, and she wanted one machine to do it all. But there was a good reason this technology didn't exist. Different classes of blood tests required different types of equipment, most of which was very difficult to make smaller. As they made big equipment smaller and put it in a tiny space, they ran into all kinds of problems, they being Theranos, that affected accuracy of results. And that's before even considering the challenges posed by using a tiny amount of blood. All this to say, the mini lab was a cool idea, but it never really became more than a poorly functioning prototype. So countless companies in Silicon Valley attempt to build novel technology that never works out. There's no shame in that. Theranos was doing the same thing. The big difference, and where they crossed the boundary between innovation and fraud, is that Elizabeth was making people believe that she had taken this really cool idea and made it a reality. 
the reality was actually that she had a really cool idea and that they were unable to make it happen. Okay, back to the fundraising. I want to highlight two different Theranos investors. The first was the Lucas Venture Group. You might remember Don Lucas, the chairman of the Theranos board. Well, the Lucas Venture Group was run by his son, also named Don. Don Jr. had passed on investing in Theranos seven years earlier because... He said he didn't like or trust Elizabeth. Turns out his initial impression was correct, but he changed his mind since then. The two factors that had won him over were Theranos' impending launch in Walgreens with their finger stick tests, which he thought were novel and unique and nobody else had them, and their partnership with the U.S. military. Interestingly, the finger stick technology they were rolling out in Walgreens didn't actually exist, and neither did the partnership with the military. Theranos had attempted to partner with the military after Elizabeth met and wooed General Mattis, but when working out the details of that deal, one of the military people in charge rightfully raised regulatory concerns about how Theranos was not compliant with FDA regulations, so the partnership never materialized. So Lucas was basing his investment decision on information that simply was not true. The next group is even worse, though. They were Christopher James and Brian Grossman, and they ran a San Francisco hedge fund called Partner Management Fund. They were intrigued after reading a Wall Street Journal piece on Elizabeth, which was essentially a fluff piece with no real investigative journalism. It was published in, uh, I don't remember what it was called, but it's like their kind of weekend magazine thing. So James and Grossman met with Elizabeth and Sonny, who told them their finger stick technology could perform 300 tests, representing over 99% of all lab requests. They also said they had submitted all the tests to the FDA for approval. Both of these claims were outright lies. Grossman and James violated one of our cardinal rules, always independently verify. They seemingly took Elizabeth and Sonny's claims at face value. Elizabeth also showed them a presentation allegedly comparing test data from Theranos devices to conventional lab machines. The data showed that Theranos' results tracked perfectly with the conventional machines. What she failed to share was that most of the Theranos test data that she was showing them was actually run on blood analyzers built by other companies. Theranos would commonly collect samples, then take them back to their secret lab where they would run the tests on devices made by Siemens and other major players. A lot of times, Theranos had altered these devices. It wasn't novel technology. It was them kind of hacking uh, a piece of equipment that another company had made. I have to read you this next part. Sonny and Elizabeth's boldest claim was that the Theranos system was capable of running 70 different blood tests simultaneously on a single finger stick sample and that it would soon be able to run even more. The ability to perform so many tests on just a drop or two of blood was something of a holy grail in the field of microfluidics. Thousands of researchers around the world in universities and industry had been pursuing this goal for more than two decades, ever since the Swiss scientist Andreas Mons had shown that the microfabrication techniques developed by the computer chip industry could be repurposed to make small channels that moved tiny volumes of fluids. But it had remained beyond reach for a few basic reasons. The main one was that the different classes of blood tests required vastly different methods. Once you'd used your micro blood sample to perform an immunoassay, there usually wasn't enough blood left for the completely different set of lab techniques a general chemistry or a hematology assay required. Another was that while microfluidic chips could handle very small volumes, no one had yet figured out how to avoid losing some of the sample during its transfer to the chip. Losing a little bit of the blood sample didn't matter much when it was large, but it became a problem when it was tiny. To hear Elizabeth and Sonny tell it, Theranos had solved these and other difficulties, challenges that had bedeviled an entire branch of bioengineering research. So Elizabeth and Sonny were straight up lying to investors, but investors assumed they were credible largely because of the sterling reputations of the Theranos board members. Elizabeth had met George Schultz, the 92-year-old former Secretary of State, 
He served under Ronald Reagan. She met him two years earlier and cultivated a relationship with him. He eventually joined the board, and through him, Elizabeth met and cultivated relationships with other prominent men like General Mattis and Henry Kissinger and a handful of other guys who had similar status. These men all ended up sitting on the Theranos board, of course, in exchange for grants of stock, and their presence lent an insane and unjustified amount of credibility to the company. As a quick aside, this is the same phenomenon of outsourced trust that we saw with Madoff. People invested because they trusted the people who were already investors. Because this is a recurring theme, we, of course, have a maxim for it. Outsourced trust will eventually bust. If you don't conduct your own due diligence and you assume something is legit based on the other people involved, you're just asking to be a victim of fraud. All right, we're going to cap off this section with another excerpt from the book to drive it home. The presence of these former cabinet members, congressmen, and military officials on the board also lent credence to Elizabeth and Sonny's assertions that Theranos' devices were being used in the field by the U.S. military. James and Grossman thought that Theranos' fingerstick offerings in Walgreens and Safeway stores were likely to be a hit with consumers and to capture a large share of the U.S. blood testing market. A contract with the Department of Defense would add another big source of revenues. A spreadsheet with financial projections Sonny sent the hedge fund executives supported this notion. It forecast gross profits of $165 million on revenues of $261 million in 2014 and gross profits of $1.08 billion on revenues of $1.68 billion in 2015. Little did they know that Sonny had fabricated these numbers from whole cloth. Theranos hadn't had a real chief financial officer since Elizabeth had fired Henry Mosley in 2006. The closest thing the company had to one was a corporate controller named Denise Yam. Six weeks after Sonny sent Partner Fund his projections, Yam sent very different ones to an advisory firm called Aranka for the purpose of pricing stock options for employees. Yam forecast a profit of $35 million in 2014 and of $100 million in 2015, $130 million and $980 million less, respectively, than what Sonny projected to Partner Fund. The gap in revenues was even bigger. She predicted revenues of $50 million in 2014 and $134 million in 2015, $211 million and $1.55 billion less than the projections given to Partner Fund. As it would turn out, even Yam's numbers were wildly optimistic. I'm going to jump around a little bit here and, and read you some numbers that came out in the trial. Holmes had told Walgreens, Safeway, and subsequent investors that Theranos was profitable, but the numbers told a different story. They showed that Theranos had lost money every single year of its 15-year existence. By late 2013, when Holmes told investors that Theranos was growing from cash generated by its pharmaceutical contracts, the accumulated losses had reached $253 million, and the pharmaceutical income stream was pure fiction. In 2012 and 2013, Theranos hadn't generated a dollar of revenue. One projection given to the DeVos family and other new investors in the fall of 2014 forecast $140 million in revenues by the end of that year. In reality, Theranos was on track to book revenues of just $150,000. All right, back to the uh, partner fund investors here. James and Grossman, of course, had no way of knowing that Theranos' internal projections were 5 to 12-fold lower than the ones they were shown. It didn't occur to them that anything untoward could be going on at a company with such a prestigious board. So at this point, Theranos had raised a lot of money. They're rolling out partnerships with major companies, and Elizabeth is being profiled in huge publications. The media attention is making her famous and lending even more credibility to her sham of a company. Speaking of publicity, in 2014, the New Yorker published a huge profile on Elizabeth. A man by the name of Adam Clapper happened to read the article. Clapper was a pathologist who also had a pathology blog. Clapper began looking into the story and learned something very interesting about the journal in which Elizabeth had published the study she referenced in the New Yorker piece. This is from the book. 
Clapper had never heard of hematology reports before, so he looked into it. He learned that it was an online-only publication based in Italy that charged scientists who wanted to publish in it a $500 fee. He then looked up the paper Holmes had co-authored and was shocked to see that it included data for just one blood test from a grand total of six patients. In a post on his blog about the New Yorker story, Clapper pointed out the medical journal's obscurity and the flimsiness of the study and declared himself a skeptic. So what's interesting here is that this was publicly available information. Clapper just probably did some Googling to figure it out. So why couldn't the investors do this? Why couldn't the partners do this? Those are good questions. Clapper's blog post attracted the attention of someone who was collecting information from Theranos skeptics. When Clapper realized that the story had some meat, he decided to reach out to an investigative journalist who he'd helped before. That journalist was Carrie Rue, and Clapper's tip led to Carrie Rue's groundbreaking reporting on Theranos and ultimately this book that we're talking about today. So this podcast isn't really the place to go into all the details about how the story unfolded and, and Carrie Rue's investigative journalism and all that. So I'll just give you a high-level rundown of what happened. Carrie Rue started digging into the story and was able to piece together some majorly damning details, mainly from interviews with former Theranos employees. One of those employees was actually the grandson of Theranos board member George Schultz. Basically, these employees brought Carrie Rue details about the Edison and the mini lab and details about the insane secrecy and toxic culture within the company. They were also able to bring him email evidence about concerns they had raised to management, which confirmed Elizabeth and Sonny not only knew about the issues, but that they were actively working to hide them and silence anyone speaking out. Theranos had rolled out their partnership with Walgreens and was in a number of stores in the Phoenix area, but Carrie learned that Theranos didn't test the blood samples in Walgreens. They shipped the samples back to their lab in California where they ran the tests on commercial analyzers they had modified, not on Theranos devices. This led to all kinds of crazy inaccurate results causing patients to experience terror and distress and spend money on additional testing that just never should have happened. Carrie Rue was able to connect with skeptical doctors in the Phoenix area and get them on the record about the havoc that the Theranos tests were wreaking on their patients. Ultimately, he published his piece in the Wall Street Journal outlining everything he had discovered. And around the same time, a Theranos employee filed a complaint with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which goes by CMS. The complaint detailed many of the same issues that Carrie published in his article. So that complaint resulted in a pretty prompt investigation that concluded with a report detailing just a litany of issues at Theranos. Carrie Roof found out that this investigation happened and that there was a report that was pretty damning and he just relentlessly pursued his sources until he finally got someone to leak the full report to him. It's like a 120 page report and he published the full thing along with a letter from CMS threatening to ban Elizabeth from the blood testing industry for two years. That ban eventually happened in 2016 and Theranos was also under investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office and the SEC. What I find really sad about this whole situation is that if Theranos investors or partners had asked some of the questions that Carrie Rue was asking, they would have stayed away from Theranos. And this whole disaster just could have been avoided. But as we've said again and again, desire is blinding. And so many people wanted the story of Theranos to be true that they were blinded to the fact that it was obviously false. So how did it end? Theranos ran out of money in 2018 and the company was dissolved. Investors in Theranos lost nearly $1 billion. And that doesn't even begin to explain the heartache experienced by the patients. Elizabeth and Sonny both went through long criminal trials. And in late 2022, Elizabeth was sentenced to 11 years and three months in prison. And Sonny was sentenced to 12 years and 11 months in prison. One more passage from the book before we wrap this up. A sociopath is often described as someone with little or no conscience. I'll leave it to the psychologist to decide whether Holmes fits the clinical profile, but there's no question that her moral compass was badly askew. 
I'm fairly certain she didn't initially set out to defraud investors and put patients in harm's way when she dropped out of Stanford 15 years ago. By all accounts, she had a vision that she genuinely believed in and threw herself into realizing. But in her all-consuming quest to be the second coming of Steve Jobs, amid the gold rush of the unicorn boom, there came a point when she stopped listening to sound advice and began to cut corners. Her ambition was voracious, and it brooked no interference. If there was collateral damage on her way to riches and fame, so be it. And that is where I'll leave you. Hopefully by studying Elizabeth Holmes, Bernie Madoff, and all the other fraudsters we're going to talk about this season, we can avoid being that collateral damage. If you enjoyed this episode, I highly recommend buying the book. What I gave you here was essentially just the outline. There are a million other super fascinating details that Carrie Rue covers in the book, and it's definitely worth reading. It was actually painful to me the amount of detail I had to cut to keep this episode to a reasonable length. It's a great book. It's well worth the time you'll spend reading it. And if you buy the book using the link in the show notes, you'll be supporting the podcast, which I very much appreciate. And with that, we're one book closer to avoiding fraud as investors and entrepreneurs.